You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. You would think that after nearly a decade of working with an Australian on a show about monsters, we'd have done episodes on the three most famous cryptid-themed monsters of the land down under, the Yowie, the Bunyip, and the Drop Bear. But somehow we've only managed to cover the silliest of them, the Drop Bear. Until now. The Bunyip is a mysterious creature that has filled a cultural niche not dissimilar to the Kelpie of Scotland. It's a monster whose legendary malevolent status is used to steer people away from dangerous bodies of water. But there may well be more to the Bunyip than just legend. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today we're tackling the second of Australia's cryptid trinity, the Bunyip. The mysterious water creature has a long history in Australia, but like many cryptids, the common conception of it has changed quite a bit over time. Today's guest, Paul Michael Donovan, is a colleague of previous Repeat Monster Talk interviewee David Waldron. In fact, I highly recommend that you check out David's podcast, Tales from Rat City, which he produces with Tom Hodgson and Katrina Hill. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks to my busy schedule this month, this episode's already later than I intended, so I'm going to skip the chit-chat and get straight on to the Monster Talk. Paul Michael Donovan is a PhD candidate at Federation University with a Master's in Cultural Heritage from Deakin University. He's an ethno-historian and cultural history professional. Welcome to Monster Talk, Paul Michael. G'day. Hi. So you've, you've got cultural history professional here. Is that a term that you've uh, invented yourself? I, 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 I like it. I just don't know much about it. What, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it is. Um, professionally, it's, um, it's a bit of a catch-all term that I've come up with to describe what I do um, because – 
what I do is a bit different to what other people in my industry do. So I'm on one hand a researcher and an academic, um, and on another hand I also consult to museums and other institutions to do interpretation and education and presentations for you know turning data into interesting things that the public can listen to and consume and enjoy so it's about uh you know conveying information in sort of non-traditional ways um i consult to museums i consult to the university i work in schools uh, i work with a company called history up close um and we do everything from you know ancients right through to colonial um so i I spread myself a lot around a lot of different sort of historical and academic fields. Um, but what I do is always about taking history out of the books and out of the documents and then bringing it to life in a way that people can relate to. Great. And I believe that we've got a mutual friend, haven't we, in David Waldron? Yeah, we do. He's yeah, one of my favourite people. <laughs> one of our former uh, interviewees on the show. We've had him on several times, I think, haven't we? Yeah. Two, three times? Yeah. And uh, he, he's going to be especially relevant because I think the episode that comes out before this one is uh, going to touch on uh, uh, Black Shulks uh, again. And so that's uh, that's something he's definitely interested in. Yeah, we've spoken with him about alien big cats and, and uh, lots of Australian creatures and, and cryptids and that's why we've got you on the show today, because David suggested you to come on the show to talk about bunyips. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I, speaking as an American, uh, you know, we're here to talk about bunyips. But what is a bunyip for people who aren't from down under? Well, that's an interesting thing. Even as an Australian, it's. I mean, we've grown up with this term kind of in our popular culture and in our psyche, and most Australian people never really stop to ask themselves what a bunyip is. It's just something that we sort of understand by default without really questioning. It's an osmosis thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is an osmosis thing. Um, <laughs> my first encounter with the bunyip was as a very small child. We had a, a cartoon called <laughs> Dot and the Kangaroo. <laughs> you said osmosis, right? Osmosis, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We had a cartoon called, we had a cartoon called Dot and the Kangaroo. Um, and Dot was a little girl who was raised by kangaroos and she sort of rode around in the pouch of a kangaroo. Um, and it was just a kid's story. Um, but in Dot and the Kangaroo, there was this kind of bad character called the Bunyip, who was this really sort of creepy ghost character who came out of the water in, in the billabongs. Um, billabongs, an Australian word for swamp, by the way. Um, and this thing, it looked a lot like an indigenous uh, religious icon that we have here called the Wanjana. Um, which is a completely different myth with a completely different story in a completely different context. But one thing that white people do in Australia is we take bits of indigenous culture from elsewhere and sort of smush it together into something else. So the dot and the kangaroo bunyip looked like a wanjina, which is a big white-faced anthropomorphic ghost thing. Um, uh, and that, that was my first encounter with the bunyip, just that we knew that it existed. It was terrifying. It was, you know, something that was vaguely Aboriginal. Yeah, I was thinking it's a lot like jazz. If you just don't know what it is, then, you know, you can't explain it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But when you hear it, you know it. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm sure we're really confusing the listeners now. Well, it, I, I, I'm just amazed at the coincidence there because uh, we made the little osmosis joke but then you've got 
Oz for Australia. You've got uh, Oz has Dorothy, Dot and the Kangaroo, and Dot yeah. is Dorothy. What's going on? Yeah. Are you? <laughs> it's all connected. Don't you see? <laughs> so, Paul Michael, how did you become interested in the bunyip? Uh, well, that happened much later in my career, actually. As a bit of a sort of sideline, we at the one of the museums where I work, which is the um, in the National Wool Museum in Geelong, and I should point out there that um, that's a museum about wool, not war. When we say wool museum, people think we're saying war museum. I did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, this is uh, World Wool One or World Wool Two, or <laughs> um, no. because the city of Geelong was founded on the wool industry and um, you know the pastoral industry, grazing of sheep and this sort of thing. And it was a it was a dock where we were shipping out wool from all over Victoria. Um, so the Wool Museum is there about that. Um, but we also do a lot of sort of local culture and that kind of thing. Um, and we had a, a an exhibition about local folklore, and one of the things that we talked about there was the bunyip. Um, we actually got David Waldron in to do uh, a lecture on bunyips and big cats, both of which are local folklores around Geelong. And one of the things we did as part of this exhibition was we asked local children in local schools to draw pictures of the bunyip to put in the exhibition. Um, and as you can probably imagine, the, no Australian kid really exactly knows what a bunyip is. So when you ask a whole bunch of you know primary school aged children to draw a picture of the bunyip, you get all these really weird, random pictures of different things. Because there's no sort of rules as to what a bunyip is. So kids just draw whatever pops into their head. That's actually tied into, uh, Karen and I have been talking about the sort of descriptions. So it, sometimes it has feathers or fur or scales or it looks like a dog or a bird or a crocodile. So is it's there... Everything. Yeah, is there like a... Yeah, is it a chimera type creature or is it just... Is there... Is it just because it doesn't have a description exactly it, it, it could be anything you want it to be or is there a if there was a you know type specimen what would it look like i guess we're just, can we draw a picture for our audience of what it might be yeah um my explanation for this is that all of these modern depictions that we now have of the bunyip these are all developments of the myth and the myth has changed a lot in the last 200 years so the bunyip as it was at the point of colonial contact was something that was quite specific i would say very specific um, but now, because of the way white people have taken this myth and sort of run with it in, in every possible direction, it's impossible now to sort of relate what we now have as a bunyip as what the bunyip originally was. So there's a statue in Queensland, and uh, I don't know how well Americans know Australian geography, but um, the, <laughs> difference between, the difference between Melbourne, where we are, where the bunyip myth originated, and Queensland uh, is sort of, you know, one end of Europe to the other geographically. Or, or you know, say, you know, Mexico to Canada in your terms. No, as we say, where is Europe? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the vast geographical distance, and in that distance you're looking at hundreds of different Aboriginal countries which have mm-hmm. almost nothing to do with each other, separate languages, separate cultures, separate myths, Um so when you see the Bunyip myth popping up all around Australia, um, it's only done that through white people. It's not an Aboriginal myth that existed everywhere. It was an Aboriginal myth from one place um, that once white people got it and put it into their popular culture, it spread and it developed and it grew and it became other things. So there's a statue of the Bunyip in Queensland that looks like a crocodile, um, which has nothing to do with our Bunyip. 
you know. The dot in the kangaroo bunyip looks like a wanjina, which is from Broome in Western Australia, um, which also has nothing to do with the original bunyip myth. So these are all sort of white people developments of the indigenous myth. And we do this. Um, you know, there's examples that we have in, in our general sort of language, like the word kangaroo, for example, um, is a word that came out of Sydney and it was a, a local word for the animal there. And then the colonies came from Sydney to what's now Victoria with this, what they thought was an Aboriginal word, kangaroo, and Aboriginal people here had never heard that word because here it's called Cohen. Um, so they assumed that kangaroo was the white person word for the animal. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of it became the catch-all word. So we, we take Aboriginal words from one place and then superimpose them in places where they don't belong, and then they don't mean anything there. Yeah, that's a great story about kangaroo. I remember learning about that at university, and, yeah, that, that was yeah. pretty funny. Uh, I wanted to ask you exactly where the statue is in Queensland. Um, so the so bunyip in Queensland, he's in Mulgildi. So, yeah. Blake, you had a follow-up question? The word itself is an Aboriginal word. It's not like there's a single tribe called Aboriginals. It's not a universally recognized term across all the Aboriginals, right? Exactly right. There are over 700 Aboriginal languages across Australia, and most of them are not related to each other. Um, Most academics before me uh, have agreed that the word comes from Wemba Wemba country, which is on the Murray River, um, which is the border of Victoria and New South Wales. Uh, I disagree with that. I don't think it came from Wemba Wemba country. Um, The reason why they're saying it came from Wemba Wemba country is because there was a bunyip skull, which was found in the 1840s. Um, which came from Wemba Wemba country. And that was the very first time the word bunyip ever popped up in a newspaper. When this skull appeared, nobody knew what it was. Uh, it came from a farm on the Murray River in Wemba Wemba country. Um, they asked the local Aboriginal people what it was, and they said it was a bunyip. So the newspapers have situated the word as being indigenous to there. Um, and so when you look up bunyips from, you know, other academics who've studied them, they'll all say it's a Wemba Wemba word. Um, I disagree. I think that the word itself comes from Wadawurrung country, which is in Geelong and also Ballarat, um, and the surrounding districts, uh, which is on the opposite side of the state of Victoria. Um, and the reason I think that is that there are a few reasons. Um, but first of all, uh, that we have a, a colonial, character here who was uh, escaped from a a penal colony. He was a convict um, and he escaped from this prison camp in 1803, um, which was on the coastline of Victoria. He was hoping from there to walk to Sydney, um, which is not physically possible uh, because it's (laughs) about a thousand kilometers of desert in between. Um, But he figured he escaped from the camp and he was just going to walk until he hit Sydney. Um, instead, what he ended up doing was living for 32 years among the Wadawurrung people, the indigenous people of uh, this area of Geelong and, and Ballarat. Uh, and he stayed with them for 32 years until finally uh, the colonial world sort of caught up with him. And in 1835, the pastoralists came here to start their colony with their sheep. So in that space of 32 years, this character, William Buckley was his name, learnt the Wadawurrung language. He learned their culture, he learned their hunting styles and their lifestyles, and basically assimilated with them. Uh, And during that time, he learned about the bunyip. He learned all that. He learned all that, but he didn't learn how to say, and how do I get to Sydney? (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing is once he sort of met the Wathorong people, he assimilated with them very quickly and he, uh, you know, fit in very nicely with their lifestyle. And I guess from that point, he didn't see the need to escape anymore. You know, he'd kind mm-hmm. of found a family and he'd found a home and he'd found a culture and he settled there. Um, nice. Yeah. But the Wathorong people use the term bunyip differently to other indigenous people around here. Um, you know, everywhere else in Victoria, including Wemba Wemba on the Murray country, it's thought of as a monster, but it's thought of as a sort of urban legend type monster, this thing that nobody's seen but everybody's heard about. Mm-hmm. But at the point of colonial contact, Wathorong people speak about the bunyip as this is a, a thing that is in our country that some people have encountered. It's dangerous, so we don't go near it. Which is, I think that's a bit of a nuance. It is. Yeah, very much so. Um, another important thing is that uh, the um, William Buckley, as a having become a Wathorung man, decided to go out and hunt the Bunyip, uh, and his people forbid him from doing it um, because in their culture, anybody who encountered the Bunyip, they believed that if somebody sort of met one or touched one, then death and sickness would come down on their tribe and their people. So... The animal was a, a thing that they believed existed in their landscape that, you know, they they actively tried not to go near. There was a an indigenous leader uh, who was recorded as the last of his tribe um, in the 1860s, um, and his name was Willem Barnip, and he was called Barnip because his father saw a Bunyip uh, at a place in Geelong where he was born. So they named him after it. Nice. Yeah. I'm curious about this uh, bunyip skull. Is that yeah. still around? As far as I know, it's not. Um, but it came out. It was it was a huge sensation in the 1840s when they first found it, uh, and they basically passed it around professors and you know um, scientists and and tried to do as much analysis on it as they possibly could because at this point. Um, you know, the scientific and academic sort of circles were perfectly prepared to believe that the bunyip was a real animal. Um, this is a point in the mid-19th century when Australia was a very foreign and alien and strange place to, you know, non-Indigenous people. And they were finding all kinds of bizarre and weird things here that, you know, don't make sense by any other law of nature. I mean, look at a kangaroo, for example. What is it? Is it a camel? Is it a deer? Is it a rabbit? You know, it's, it doesn't make sense. A platypus, sense. Oh, gosh. A platypus, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a beaver with the bill of a duck. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. our animals don't make sense. Our plants don't make sense. So finding strange things in the landscape here was par for the course. And they were sort of trying to document these strange things as they were finding them. So when someone came up and said, you know, we've got this creature that, you know, it, when we describe it, there's aspects of a fish and aspects of a dog and aspects of a, an emu. They're thinking, okay, so that's another strange animal. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's try and document this. The, the analysis of the skull was, um, you know, it baffled a lot of scientists at the time because they'd never seen anything like it. But that was unsurprising. Um, it was did tours of museums and curiosity shops in the 19th century where they, you know, put it in the window and charge people to come and have a look at it sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure what happened to the skull in the end. But uh, there was, at some point, fairly shortly after it was, you know, discovered, somebody did an analysis of it, and it turned out to be the skull of a foal. So really, by the 1850s, the skull had been debunked, but it was a foal that had um, 
been miscarried and was deformed when it was born. So its head was looked nothing like it should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are photographs of that skull still kicking around on the internet, and you can find it. Um, if you look at the Tales from Rat City um, podcast, they've actually put photographs of that skull uh, on on the podcast about the bunyip. Um, and it does look very, very strange. Like its teeth don't line up and it's got sort of one giant, I guess, an eye hole in the middle of its head. And it's just, it's a really weird looking skull. It's its really mangled. So there are several Bigfoot museums here in the US. So we need a, a bunyip museum, I think, in Australia. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that idea, of, though, of uh, uh, taking uh, nature's... Uh, uh, like uh, misshapen or uh, miscarried or birth defects or whatever you want to call them, uh, and then putting them on display has been around for a long time. And people seem to, or not everybody, but a lot of people seem really fascinated by these sort of uh, anomalies. Nature gone mm-hmm. wrong, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the carnival had like, uh, you know, the sideshow of the 10 and 1, uh, the idea yeah. of like going in and seeing. Uh, these uh, weird things, and uh, but from a scientific perspective, we learn a lot from uh, when things go wrong as well as we do when things go right. So yeah, yeah. we really do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Um, but I think the myth of the bunyip goes even deeper and older than that. Uh, and there's a there's a reason why. The place in one of the neighbouring countries to Wadawurrung Country, which is Japurrung Country, um, which encompasses what we now call the Grampians. National Park, which is a mountain range. Uh, the Grampians, the indigenous name for that is Gary Word, and Gary Word's in Jabwaran country. And there's a place there called Chalicum, Chalicum Station, which was a colonial sheep station um, that had a lot of uh, billabongs, so water holes and, you know, chains of ponds running through it. Um, and there was what we anthropologists call a geoglyph there. So the geoglyph was believed by the Jabwaran people to be a picture of the original Bunyip. And the traditional Jabwarung story goes that there were two boys who were fishing by a waterhole, brothers, uh, and that the Bunyip came up out of the waterhole. All of a sudden it appeared uh, and it grabbed one of the brothers and was about to eat him. Um, the second brother stood up and you know screamed at the Bunyip, give me back my brother. Uh, and the Bunyip dropped the body of the boy, but he was already dead. So the brother, to get revenge, speared and killed the bunyip and you know, dragged it onto the shore. Um, where it lay, he drew a line around its body. And as it sort of you know, deteriorated, they continued to come back there. The family of the people, of the boy who was killed, came back to that spot every year and retraced that line around where the body of the bunyip was. And they heaped up the earth around it into, to form this geoglyph, to form this sort of picture um, this sort of carving in the landscape. Um, and we know that that's a, a pretty uh, central part of ab- Aboriginal Indigenous rituals right across Australia, um, where a geoglyph like that would be made by heaping up piles of dirt, and that would tell a story. So around the geoglyph, then you have a dance, and the steps of the dance are tied to the words of the story. And then you tie the information that's in that story to the geoglyph, and then that lines up with the stars and you have a, an astronomy or an astrology, um, which you have the characters. Each star is a character and you tell that story every year. And that's how you pass information down. Um, and we know that a lot of very complex and very rich, what we would call data, is disseminated that way through indigenous cultures. So you can keep an oral tradition alive 
for thousands of years and keep quite a lot of detail intact by tying it to the landscape and to to the stars. Um, you know, a lot of um, what you know, let's um, a lot of uh, academics use this term Chinese whispers, which is, you know, obviously a racist term. But in Australia, this term Chinese whispers refers to when I tell you something, you tell that to someone else and it changes a little bit. Um, you know, he tells it to someone else and it changes a little bit. Right. And we, we tend we to call think it that, telephone game. And we tend to think of this phenomenon as a reason why oral traditions are not reliable because mm-hmm. every time you tell it to someone else, it changes a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, the indigenous oral traditions don't suffer from that because they tie their data to rock formations, to the stars, to geoglyphs, to, you know, and, and they have a dance and a practice and a story that gets remembered and passed on that way, like cue cards, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So there's almost this sort of dot points of data that, that fall into so you can pass them on and pass them on correctly. Yeah, so we actually had on uh, Lynn Kelly to talk about spiders uh, mm-hmm. and because she was a uh, uh, an arachnophobe who learned to love spiders, but she also wrote a book uh, where she makes an argument that a lot of uh, things like geoglyphs and uh, other uh, Stonehenge, uh, yeah, all, all these sort of like ancient uh, structures could could have a, a mnemonic purpose, like uh, mm-hmm. not to be clear, n- like to aid memory, not demonic, which is different. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yes, yeah, and that's what it is. They're memory yeah. aids. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> the Aboriginal people would use these kinds of geoglyphs for that. Uh, and so the the geoglyph at Chalicum, on Chalicum Station in Jalbaran country, was still there until the 1960s um, when, you know, the local farmers decided to take down the fences that were around that geoglyph and let the cattle graze over it, which destroyed and deleted the geoglyph forever. Um, but... The anthropologist Aldo Masola went down there in the 1950s when the geoglyph was still there and, and did quite a bit of study on that and spoke to the local indigenous people about it. Uh, and it was visited by various people um, through the, the colonial period, um, which uh, my supervisor, actually, Ian Clark, published an article just last year about some of the colonial people who visited that. Um, Bunbury, Latrobe, Wathan, and the Jabarung people, it was called. Um so we know that this culture, this tradition was alive, you know, within living memory. Um, but it's been erased, uh, unfortunately. This breaks my heart. This, this, I was going to say, this happens in America, too. Uh, I, we keep hearing stories about, uh, you know, uh, mound builders who built mounds and farmers come along and just clear that and use it for, you know, they just raise it to the ground. And it's like, oh, yeah. it's heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. so so many of these, uh, and uh, it came up in some of our uh, talks. It happened in Europe too. Uh, a lot of these old uh, cairns and other burial type structures, and um, just being removed because they were in the way of uh, agricultural progress. progress. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the thing about the Chalicum Bunyip is it was described as being twelve to fifteen feet in length. Um, and there's pictures around of it, so you can have a look at it, um, and I'll try and describe it in a moment. Uh, but the the Japurung story was that the Bunyip was a creature that dwelt in the water but could also walk on land, okay? Mm-hmm. And we have those, so that's fine. Um, when it was in the water, they said it swam like a frog. When it was on the land, it walked on its hind legs. 
No, that's so peculiar. 12, yeah, a little odd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's twelve to fifteen feet in length. William Buckley, the escaped convict who went hunting the bunyip, he said he found one at a place called Lake Motawari, which is on Wadawurrung country. Um, and Motawari is like a giant, giant swamp. It's uh, I think it's about ten kilometers in in diameter. Um, it's huge, um, but it's uh, it's a giant swamp. But it's made from a like a volcanic lake uh, in the in the area. It was naturally occurring. Um, and he said he went down there and hunted one and he said that he only was able to see a, a flash of its back for, you know, for a second and he didn't get to see the rest of it, but he said the back of it, he, um, was unsure if it was feathers or fur and it was either dark brown or dark gray. So we're looking at a creature that could potentially be a bird, but can also <laughs> walk and can mm-hmm. also swim. Yeah. Um, everything. Yeah. And the the uh, the geoglyph at Chelicum, um is has kind of it's pointed at both ends and kind of fat in the middle, um, and it actually has two little either feet or stumpy flippers or whatever drawn onto it, um, and it looks from a modern Western perspective quite a bit like a dinosaur. So when you think of a plesiosaur or something like that, and one of the the theories that was kicking around in the 19th century was that you know Australia being such a an alien place that perhaps dinosaurs had survived here until the 19th century and then gone extinct when the colonies had popped up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which which we now understand is a ridiculous idea, but it was one of the ideas that was floated around in the 19th century. Um, yeah. So there were people in the 19th century saying, well, perhaps the bunyip was a dinosaur that continued to live here. The interesting thing, though, is that Jabwarung people and Wemba Wemba people couldn't say, any one of them could not say that they had themselves seen a bunyip. Now, Aldo Masola, the anthropologist in the 1950s, came up with this idea of what if the geoglyph isn't a dinosaur? What if it's a seal? Because if you look at it the other way around, where what would usually we'd be saying was the head of the dinosaur, what if that's the tail? And what if the tail of the dinosaur is the head? When you look at it like that, it very quickly looks like a picture of a seal. Now, we have a phenomenon here in Australia where quite frequently, I mean, not every day, but it it occasionally happens that seals sort of swim up the estuaries into the rivers and get stuck there and don't know how to get back to the sea. When I was doing this research about the bunyip for the first time, this happened more than once during the period when I was researching it, once in New South Wales and once in Victoria. And sometimes it's not just one seal. Sometimes it's dozens or even hundreds of seals that swim up up a, a river and get stuck there. Um, and when it happens, it's it's out of the ordinary, but it does happen. So prior to the colonial times, with you know the the newspapers and the modern technology, there's no reason why a person living inland in Australia would have a word for seal or know what one was. If there were two Chelicum Jabwarung boys sitting by the waterhole fishing and a seal popped out of the water, they would have no idea what it was. None at all. <laughs> if it attacked and killed one of them, then there's reason to put that as a story into their cultural tradition. Because then there's a danger of something you don't know popping out of the water that might kill you. This is a literal <laughs> dangerous threat. Yeah. So we use oral traditions in many different cultures to accommodate for these kinds of anomalies that are in our environment that are dangerous to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in my family, you know, where Irish immigrants uh, into the colonies, we have a, a water hole that's near our house that my great, great grandfather's children 
uh, died in the waterhole. And ever since then, that waterhole has been a story in our family. If we don't go to this place because there were these two boys that died there, who were our, you know, our relatives. And we always grew up as kids thinking that was just a, you know, a, a fable that Nana told us to keep us away from the waterhole. Um, but when my dad was doing some family research and some family history, he found some old colonial newspapers that told the story of these two boys from our family who died in this waterhole. So it turned out literally to be true. Wow. We do this in all cultures or in most cultures. We, we come up with a story that we tell our children to warn them about things that might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if there were, you know, if two boys encountered a seal in Japwaran country, in inland Australia, and they didn't know what it was, there's every reason why they would create an oral tradition to warn other people that this is a dangerous thing that might happen to them. Yeah, interesting theory. Yeah, and that, right, that, yeah. That, that, that cultural role of monsters as a, a warning or protection uh, to keep uh, people away from water seems pretty common around lake monsters and river monsters. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, although and, you know, I mean, from a moral perspective, the that we have the uh, the boogeyman or the boogerman, who sort of you know does the same kind of thing for if you're bad, you get caught. But the difference, I think, the river monsters, you know, there's no moral lesson. It's just stay away from the water; it's dangerous. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, colonial sources with you know travelers and settlers and tourists and other people who. There became this fascination with the bunyip. Everyone wanted to talk to the Aboriginal people about it. Um, and the one thing they said was that there were certain waterholes, particular places, that you could not induce an Aboriginal person to go to. Um, we know that you know the rivers and waterholes were the, the backbone of Aboriginal life here. Um, so if there was a particular one that they wouldn't go near, you know, there's a cultural reason for that. And that, you know, even white people are swimming there and going, you know, trying to trying to convince him to go. And they were saying, no, that's a place we don't go because that's where the bunyip lives. And Blake, you've intrigued me with that term booger man. I, I've never, I've heard of boogeyman, but never booger man. Sounds like something out of the nose. <laughs> it does, but it, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a good one. So uh, Aldo Masolo came up with this theory that the original bunyip was a seal. <laughs> um, there was also um, Charles Barrett, who was an anthropologist in the early mid 20th century, uh, who ran this theory as well. Um, to me, the one thing that's never been said about this idea, uh, which I've sort of joined the dots on this in my research, is in 1975, um, someone called Lois Lane wrote a, a dictionary of the Wadawurrung language, which was never published. Um, and- <laughs> from, the, from the Daily Planet. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Lois Lane was a, an amateur anthropologist, amateur archaeologist uh, who did quite a bit of work with Deakin University, um, but decided not to publish all this uh, research. Um, and that, so Deakin University still has, you know, volumes of, of Lois Lane's work, which has never been published or released to the public. Um, and one of among that is uh, is a dictionary of Wadawurrung language. And the Wadawurrung people have worked very hard in the last few decades to try to uh, research as much as possible about their language. I should point out that by the end of the 19th century, there were there was not a single speaker of the Wadawurrung language still alive. The language was systemically eradicated during the 19th century. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so what we now know about the language comes from 
lists of words that were written by colonial settlers. A lot of them thought it was useful to learn the local language, uh, so they wrote it down. Um, so people like Lois Lane have gone around and sort of tried to collate as many of those sources as possible and put them together into a dictionary. Um, in Lois Lane's dictionary, the word for leopard seal is different to the word for seal. Uh, the Wadawurrung word for seal is kuraman, um, which is, you know, probably fur seals and other kinds of seals. And then the word for a leopard seal is barnyip. That's, in, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The Wadawurrung people who are coastal people knew what a leopard seal was and had a word for it. They also knew that it was dangerous because leopard seals are dangerous. They kill people. And to explain a bit about the geography of the place, that Geelong is on the coast. As I said before, it was a, it was a colonial port. Um, but just inland of Geelong uh, is a chain of swamps and billabongs and ponds that stretches for hundreds of kilometres inland towards the west. Um, it's very little of that original chain of ponds is intact now because of you know housing developments and agriculture and other things. Um, but in the colonial period, it was a chain of freshwater ponds that went from the coast all the way inland to the pastoral country. Mm-hmm. Lake Motawari was part of that chain. Also as a place in Geelong called Warren Ponds, which is now a shopping centre, um, but originally was a chain of ponds. Um, and that was where one of the, the few places that the Wadawurrung people wouldn't go because Warren Ponds was one of the places where the Bunyip was recorded to have lived. So this word Banyip to the Wadawurrung people meant something literal. It means leopard seal. The Wadawurrung people would have been friends with the Jabwarung people at Chalikam. They you know, had ceremonies and rituals that they shared together. They had sort of political affiliations with each other and trade relations. So they would gather together for these huge meetings and share stories. Um, I think it's entirely plausible that if the Jabwarung people have said, oh, look, you know, these two of our boys got killed this year because... You know, they were fishing by the waterhole and this thing grabbed them. And their neighboring country would have gone, yeah, that's a bunyip, because they knew exactly what that was, that mm-hmm. it's entirely plausible that the, the term has stemmed from there. Definitely, yeah. That's really interesting. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, Paul Michael, we've spoken a little bit about uh, Queensland, and of course we've been discussing Victoria. You've mentioned yeah. uh, New South Wales. I'm from Sydney originally, from the Northern Beaches, and no yeah. one ever really spoke about the bunyip. I mean, again, you had this idea of the bunyip, uh, but there weren't any sightings that I was ever aware of. Is the the bunyip found Australia wide, or does it really focus on Victoria? 
Uh, is this, this more is, of a kind of rural thing? It's an interesting thing. Uh, when you look at it in the 19th century, for the first sort of decade or so after this, um, the newspaper headline was Wonderful Discovery of a New Animal in the Geelong Advertiser. Um, and that was on 2nd of July, 1845. For the first sort of decade or so, all of the sightings of it are from here. Um, but very quickly after that, um, because, you know, this wonderful discovery got published verbatim right across Australia in every newspaper. They would just send the articles to each other and then republish them word for word. Um, th- we start to see then colonial people taking this literally and going, OK, Bunyip is one of many strange things that live in our landscape. And then colonial people start seeing them. Right. So <laughs> it's what we call mm-hmm. a gestalt. Mm-hmm. So colonial people have read the newspaper and gone, okay, there's a bunyip out there. And then they've gone out fishing or whatever and seen something that they don't know what it is and go, okay, I've seen a bunyip. Mm-hmm. So suddenly everyone's got an eye out sort of looking for the bunyip out of one corner of their eye everywhere they go. And people start seeing it in all sorts of places around Australia. It gets spotted in Tasmania. It gets spotted in New South Wales. It gets spotted in Queensland. And it gets spotted in places where the traditional bunyip wouldn't expect to have shown up. So then you start to get people appropriating their local indigenous myth and going and doing the same thing as we did with the word kangaroo. You know, let's go and find mm-hmm. some Aboriginal people and ask them about the bunyip. That doesn't mean anything in the Northern Territory. It doesn't mean anything in Western Australia. So they're mm-hmm. going to go, okay, bunyip, this is a white person word. Let's tell them a story. And then <laughs> so, suddenly the bunyip appears everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and that's where you get this confusion with, you know, the, the bunyip in Queensland looks like a crocodile. Of course it does, because they've got crocodiles in Queensland. <laughs> we don't have those in Victoria, you know. Um, so what does it look like in Sydney then? <laughs> I don't think it looks like anything anywhere else. And that's where part of the problem gets. When you start looking at pictures of it that come out of, say, the 1940s and so on, you get pictures that look like an alien. You get ones that look like a bear. You get, you know, mm-hmm. And then it starts being whatever a white person wants it to look like, suddenly that's what it looks like, you know, mm-hmm. and – even the one on the Murray River, there's a tourist attraction there where you put a coin in the slot and the bunyip pops out of the water. Um, and that looks like, you know, it looks like some kind of weird green alien thing with these big gnashy teeth. And, you know, so wherever white people go and they take this misplaced indigenous mythology with them, then mm-hmm. it turns into something completely new. Um, you know, so whoever drew the bunyip for the dot in the kangaroo cartoon you know, they've seen a Wanjina somewhere and gone, okay, so that's what Aboriginal people think a ghost looks like. I want to draw a picture of a ghost. So that's what I'll draw and I'll call it the bunyip. So they're just stealing other mythologies from other cultures and shoehorning them in together. And, you know, it becomes this sort of conglomerate myth of bits from everywhere. Yeah. This is, this is really interesting. I've, um, I, I just, uh, sent in a, a proposal for a paper for a conference that's coming up uh, next year. And what I wanted to talk about is the pattern of a monster flap. And so I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, you get a case zero, someone initially spots a monster. And then they spread that story, which in turn would leave people uh, primed, if you will, to potentially, now they're on the lookout, you know, yes, and, and it, it sounds like this is uh, yet something, you know, yet another example where I need to take a look at this because uh, um, I, I think maybe this will be a good, a, another good historical case where that's going on. And mm-hmm. in this case, you also see uh, a metamorphosis of the meaning, uh, much like with the chupacabra. You know, the original yes. chupacabra was uh, a, a, a sort of 
uh, alien reptoid sort of creature with uh, spikes on its back. And then as it moved the story, not the creature, but as the story moved through uh, from Puerto Rico to uh, Central America up to North America, uh, the more and more uh, aberrant creatures were being called chupacabras. So the meanings become quite diluted. Uh, chupacabra yeah. now almost means, it, yeah, it's like any kind of weird looking animal could be a chupacabra at this point. It's really peculiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what happened with Bunyip. Um, so by the end of the 19th century, you've got indigenous people in remote places who've never, for example, seen a horse or a camel. And, you know, and then the term Bunyip gets thrown on that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then it becomes this kind of catch-all term for anything that's weird or isn't where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it sort of develops into a catch-all term for Australians for something that everybody's heard of, but nobody really knows whether it exists or not. Um, mm-hmm. One of the best examples of that for me is uh, there was the use of the term in the 19th century. Somebody used the term Bunyip aristocracy for the political hierarchy <laughs> in Australia. <laughs> And yes. the other Australian gets that, obviously, because we've got, I'm sitting you know, here going, I don't understand that joke. Like, right? what? Yeah, I can tell it's a joke. I don't get it. Yeah. It's an in-joke. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an in-joke, not to get all Marxist or anything. But um, in Australia, we've had this constant kind of um, class struggle between the aristocratic British who came out here to colonize the place and the sort of underclass, if you like, of you know, uh, Irish shepherds and working class people, convicts who are mostly Anglo-Celtic and Irish. So you've got this kind of very stark class divide in Australia between, you know, the Anglo-Celtic working classes and, let's say, also other minorities, um, for example, immigrants and whatnot. Um, There's them and then there's this kind of elite, either Presbyterian or Anglican British sort of hierarchy that rules over everyone. And it was built in the 19th century from people who... Uh, you know, had self-identified as traditionally noble families from, you know, old world aristocratic families from the United Kingdom, you know, um, Scottish land lords and British, you know, dukes and earls and whatever who'd sent their, you know, wayward nephew to the colonies to try and make a life for himself. So you get people who identify as noble and want to rule the place and then everyone else. Um, the idea of the Bunyip aristocracy is that w- when they actually get out here, nobody really cares if you're noble or not. The thing about Australians is that we're one of the most egalitarian cultures in the world. Like we, we don't address people as sir. We address everyone as mate. You know, we're, yeah. we're one people. We, we don't like hierarchies. We don't like, um, you know, cultural things that distinguish people from each other. Even in academia, um, we find a lot of people who've encountered sort of American schools and whatnot who, you know, come out and they want to address you as professor or whatever. Um, that's mm-hmm. offensive here. You know, nobody likes being addressed as professor because it implies that I'm better than you and I'm not, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a, that's something Karen's told me a bazillion times. Stop calling me Dr. Stolzno because it, it sounds yeah. pretentious. Yeah. Well, this yeah, is yeah. very different here, yeah. uh, you know, and, and we've got this concept of uh, tall poppy syndrome too. Um, yeah, yeah. Where, if, if somebody you know, tries to put themselves above you, then you cut them down. It's... <laughs> Yeah, so you bring them down a peg or two, and so we've got this leveling effect where where everyone is equal. But I do think that it is an ideal. I think that yes. we absolutely do raise people in in Australian society um, for whatever reason, you know, sports heroes in particular. Um, so, but yeah. I think it is that the egalitarianism is certainly an ideal. It's something that we strive for equality. Yeah, and it's something people. that we hold very dear to us in terms of a value. 
So when you get British people out here going, I'm the Lord, you must uh, you know, treat me accordingly, um, the critique of that kind of behavior is calling it a bunyip aristocracy. Like, everyone's heard of you being noble, but is it really there? You know? mm-hmm. yeah. It's an old value as well. Some people may not believe it, but it's not for a lack of convictions. Get it? Thank See, you. Con- Thank con- you. Convictions, yes! <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but there, yeah. And there is still some classism, I think, in Australia, too. And you can find it here as well. You know, yeah. okay, I've never been there. But honestly, just talking about it, I love I love it. I, I find it very refreshing. The idea that uh, that sort of uh, credentialed arrogance is uh, frowned upon culturally. I love that idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a very important idea to us. Yeah. And it is it, it doesn't completely translate to to other cultures your anglophone cultures uh yeah. it's just amazing when you look at uh, australia as opposed to the u.s and there are so many similarities that when you encounter differences they're, they're very large they really do create a gulf yeah well, bunny, everybody's monster yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely one of those monsters that uh, like drop bears is is distinctly australian <laughs> right but yeah but it's got more uh, it's got more grounding in uh, reality in the sense that you know people have brought out skulls and people have you know seriously gone out looking for it. Um, yeah. In the current uh, culture, is it viewed as something that is still like considered real, or has it become more of a, a folkloric cultural? Uh, uh, item at this point like is it is, do people really take it seriously now or is it just you know uh, like a snipe hunt here in america where it's not really you know I, I, yeah. yeah but i think by the mid-20th century it had become a central enough part of our culture that it was a running joke you know and this is where you get this kind of cheesy tourism kind of you know put a dollar in the slot and the bunyip pops up type tourist attraction you know the the statue of the bunyip in queensland um, the, the bunyip and dot and the kangaroo, it's, it's one of those, we know by the 1960s, 1970s, we know that it's not a real animal. Um, you know, we've decided by this point that it's a joke and we can make kids, kids books and kids cartoons about it, you know? Um, but I think more recently now with the rise of, you know, the internet and YouTube and cryptozoology, when, you know, this kind of alternative facts have come into, into popularity now, um, there's this new idea now that, you know, that there's some kind of conspiracy theory and that it's a real animal out there again, um, which I think is, you know, some people have kind of dug up what was a Victorian myth and have resurrected it in the digital digital age. Um, so, yeah, there are people out there now hunting bunyips and claiming that they're real things. And I, one of the um, articles that I published, it was in the Journal of Cryptozoology. Um, and it basically ran my theory that the uh, bunyip was a leopard seal, um, which rose as a myth out of Jaburan country. Uh, and the cryptozoologists were furious about that because they didn't want it to be, you know, a, a real thing that turned into a myth. They wanted bunyips in the landscape, you know, and they're out there hunting mm-hmm. for them. So I got I got quite a bit of negativity from some cryptozoologists about that because I was purporting that the bunyip was something other than a literal monster that was living in our waterways. Yeah, we're used to that. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of criticism. For yeah. sure. I, I, it's a good 
times throughout the term uh, euhemerism, I, I love this word, where the, the belief that, that there is a, a truth at the core of a myth, and you know, that, that these, these myths are uh, based on some real creature. And in this case, it sounds like you're making a pretty compelling argument that the, the sort of euhemerist core is that people were spotting a, a, a seal that had made its way into an area where there aren't normally seals, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, wh- while I was doing this research in, um, you know, say, you know, four years ago now, um, there was a seal that got lost in a river in Bigger in New South Wales and ended up on someone's farm. Um, you know, Bigger's you know, quite a distance from the coast by seal distance you know that's an in, in inland area um it, it happened up the murray river where some uh there was i think it was about a hundred seals came in the the waterways from uh south australia and made their way hundreds of kilometers up the murray river and got stuck there um you know even in the colonial period um there's there was a um a seasonal lake in central new south wales uh at a place called canago um which was somebody shot a fur seal there and taxidermed it, and it was in the pub until pretty recently. Um, so it happens. I want to urge our listeners to uh, to go onto YouTube and to uh, to look up Bunyip Call. So I'm not expecting you to do a, a Bunyip Call for us here, Paul Michael, but uh, if people go onto YouTube, you can just hear some very interesting, some old-timers doing um, basically imitations of the – the bunyip call, and it's a yeah. lot of fun to hear. Is there's this a like a, it's like a Bigfoot call? Kind of, like it's just a... Yeah, kind of. Um, there's a place in Victoria called Bunyip, and there's a, the town now is named Bunyip. Um, and it's because it's in uh, in Bunwarung country now, in the Swamp District. Um, and this is, you know, like hundreds of square kilometers that was completely covered in uh, inarable swamp. Uh, until, you know, with industrial technology, they were able to dredge the swamplands and turn them into farms. Um, so there's, you know, drainage systems and everything have been sort of dug in there now. Um, but at the point of colonial contact, it was just sort of entire areas of impassable swamp. And there was a particular place where the indigenous people went, yeah, don't go down there. That's where the Bunyip lives. And that's now the town of Bunyip. Um, <laughs> and history recorded that you could actually hear the Bunyip calling around there. And it was this kind of distinctive two-tone boom that was kind of halfway between a cow bellowing and a drum, um, <laughs> if, you, if you can picture that. Um, but there are birds that live in those swamps called the bittern who make that noise. Ah, interesting. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's a word. It's a noise that you don't expect to hear coming out of. It's a really little kind of duck thing, the bittern. Um, you don't expect this huge kind of boom to come out of such a tiny bird, but it does. I, I think uh, it's it's interesting to me. Like uh, when we look at a lot of different sort of cryptozoological cases and try to find, I say try to find. Oftentimes, we can match the 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 sightings to real world animals that. Fill in a lot of the details. For example, uh, owls uh, for uh, their their eye shine and other factors make them good candidates for explaining certain monsters. And, and with with lake monsters, oftentimes it's otters. Uh, yeah, 
Joe Nickel especially has talked about uh, otters traveling in a row looks like a, an animal with a snake-like head and then humps behind it because yeah. they travel that way. And uh, yeah. and then so uh, seals um, uh, are another one that comes up a lot, especially for sea monsters and, in this case, uh, more of a, just a general water monster. Uh, and as uh, – you know, these are from the uh, uh, I, they're they're pinnipeds is the the type of animal they are. This from a Linnaean yeah. perspective, and, yeah. and I can't help but think that if we explain away the bunyip, that someone's going to accuse us of uh, pinnipedentry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe you. It's a long way yeah. to go, but I felt like we needed to go there. So <laughs> this is the thing, though, when you start picturing a seal and looking at the very first descriptions of the bunyip. The ones that come out of the 1845 wonderful discovery, the ones that come from the, the Jabberung people, you start to think, okay, so maybe it's got a head like a dog. Maybe it's got possibly dark brown or dark gray. We don't know, fur, possibly feathers. You know, Maybe it swims like a frog but walks in its hind legs. You start thinking of a seal and reading that, it really starts to fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything but the walking part. I'm, I'm trying to imagine a seal walking on its hind legs and they don't really have them, so... <laughs> kind of walks on its tail it can like yeah. the way it moves yeah yeah and if but, you didn't know what it was and you're trying to describe it to a person who didn't speak your language yeah mm-hmm. those are the, those are the <laughs> you know it honestly any time i mean it's easy to like watch a nature program and think you you you've got it you understand nature but yeah if you've ever been out in 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 a rural location and then suddenly uh, an otter or a beaver or a muskrat or any of these sort of uh, uh, water-living mammals uh, pop up out of the water unexpectedly. It is quite disturbing. I mean, it really yeah. is. Uh, you, you you might expect a fish or a turtle or a snake or anything, but to see something with whiskers or, uh, you know, yeah. something with it, – it, it's I've had it happen uh, uh, to me several times because, uh, you know, Growing up in kind of a you know small town and going out in the country a lot, uh, I, I had uh, some muskrats pop up and just about you know soiled myself. It was really, really, really uh, scary and unusual. It took me quite a while to figure out what I was actually seeing. It's just not. Yeah. It's 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 just not what you would expect, you know. So I took my boy out fishing on the Barwon River, um, which is one of the last places where we still have platypus in our area. Um, and we, it's, Barwon River is also a place that is a uh, very good spot for fishing of the uh, shortfin eel that we get here, um, which was a staple food for the Wadawurrung people. Um, eels are a fascinating thing to fish because they're amazingly powerful, more powerful than a fish. Um, and when you've got one on a line, it's you know it fights like nothing else. Uh, so my boy and I were fishing by the river and we got a bite and you know it sort of bent the rod in half and then disappeared off down the down the stream um and we fought it for quite a while uh, i don't know what it was you know it was probably a, a really big eel uh, we fought it for quite a while and then it snapped the rig and just took everything with it um wow. and i looked at my boy and i said mate you just caught a bunyip that, <laughs> that, that bunyip took your entire rig and i said there's a bunyip out there somewhere with your rig in its face um and you know <laughs> My boy was only, I don't know, eight or nine at the time, and he took that completely literally. And even now, mm. as a sort of young adult, he still 
talks about this time that he almost caught a bunyip and you know every time I go fishing he goes oh that bunyip's got my rig you know I want it back you know? so, <laughs> it's a it, it's 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 an ill-conceived approach but yeah <laughs> you told some really amazing stories on Tales from Rat City which was really a cool thing and we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it was a, a very different interview but I would like you to talk about, I don't know what you would call it in Australia, but here, you know, uh, where uh, the Aboriginal guy was pulling the leg of some local whites around this topic. We call it taking the piss in Australia. Taking the piss, all right? Taking the piss, yeah. Am I allowed I to say to that say, on that? Can I just interject quickly and say I've got a friend who uh, just tries to kind of assimilate to Australian English all the time. And so he, he thinks he's got a lot of these phrases down, but he always says taking a piss. Taking it. <laughs> and I've, I've never corrected him. And he's a dear friend of mine, very close, and he doesn't listen to this show, but, but everyone knows now. But if he does, so. you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aboriginal people love taking the piss out of yeah. non-Aboriginal people um, because I think especially it's maybe some of it's a bit reactionary. Because in 19th century science, there were lots of serious scientists, some of whom, you know, wouldn't have been described as otherwise being racist people, but they literally believed that Aboriginal people were incapable of learning physiologically. So they believed that Aboriginal people were necessarily stupider than white people. And I think there's the, the backflip of that is when you go out onto the fringes of society, you get colonial people who are living in this sort of cornucopia of, you know, indigenous food sources and they're you know living for six months of, of the time on nothing but flour because they believe that there's no food around you know so aboriginal people are watching white people going how stupid is this guy you know to to them white people in the colonies were this kind of you know infant-minded people who didn't know how to do basic things like get food huh yeah like <laughs> how do these poor <laughs> bastards survive till now right <laughs> yeah yeah that kind of thing yeah uh, which is the, exactly the kind of um you know mentality and ideology that's normally directed at them so it's apparently it's going both ways here yeah <laughs> you know like oh look at him he doesn't even know how to light a fire you know this kind of thing right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, uh, and, it's um, different mastery of different technology, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then you get these, you know, these silly infantile white people coming in asking us about monsters. So what are we going to do? But take the piss out of them, you know? <laughs> so you do get things like, uh, yeah, the, the Aboriginal man who had initiation scars across his chest, um, which was a very common practice in this part of Australia, where you get to a certain age, um, if you were a male. You were then allowed to learn the next part of your cultural story. So the, the stories that they taught through these geoglyphs and these dances and things came in stages. So you'd have an initiation ritual at every stage in your life. You'd then get to learn the next part of the story, which up until this point has been a secret from you. And then to indicate that you are a person who knows this part of the story, they put marks on your body. Sounds like Scientology. Yeah, kind of. Um <laughs> <laughs> this happens in a lot of indigenous cultures. So, you know, I'm no longer a boy. I'm now, you know, this level of being a man. So I have these scars to indicate that. Yeah. Um, so you get a, a man who has scars like this and they're horizontal keloid scars across the chest, um, you know, parallel lines. And, you know, they're sitting him down and going, oh, tell us about the bunyip. And, and you know, he's gone. Yes, I have seen a bunyip. In fact, I've been attacked by one, and I've got the scars <laughs> to prove it. You know, look at the scars. <laughs> I love this story. Yeah. yeah. 
Look um, what he yeah, did to me. The claws. Yeah. The teeth. It also ate my wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, he's clearly he's clearly trolling them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they're, they're sort of naively lapping it up, going, oh, wow, we've got solid evidence here, you know. And they've written in the newspaper article, takes this very literally, you know. We found, they called him an intelligent black, um, which is now considered quite an offensive term because it, implies that the rest of them were not intelligent but you know oh, like a is, noble savage oh, yeah yeah like well this, savage, this yeah. still comes yeah. up all the time you hear people here in the south and in, in, in the united states saying oh well he's very articulate you know which yeah. automatically yeah, means yeah. that well you know unlike others you know art- yeah. like, oh my gosh yeah so, so what they would do is they would lend um authority to this particular aboriginal voice which was the offensive thing about this is that um aboriginal testimony was not admissible at court by law um you know because they were incapable of learning then you know obviously they can't tell the truth in the court of law Good so grief. yeah things like that um so you'd get generally official histories have no uh reference to aboriginal stories or aboriginal voice whatsoever um newspaper articles will generally go you know, we spoke to this reliable white person who said that his Aboriginal people told him this, this or this, but you'll never get them asking the Aboriginal people. Um, and when you do, it's we, we found an intelligent black and he told us this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the intelligent black was the man who was taking the piss out of them with the scars on his chest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And there's a... There's a lot of uh, literature too on uh, Aboriginal people and uh, how they perform differently in um, certain environments, for example, in, in court or dealing with authorities. Often they yeah. behave in ways that, that we don't, um, yes. that they might be silent, they won't answer questions and that that's viewed as, as them um, being guilty when it really is a mark of respect. Yeah. Um, you know, they might say yes to everything when they actually and admit to things that aren't true. And again, yes. these are just cultural differences. But yeah, there's uh, a lot of good work in that that area now, but not so much historically. <laughs> yeah, and then that stuff started validating. Well, this is why we don't take their word in court because you know. Um, so yeah, there's lots of these sort of cultural communication problems that come out of these stories, and I think the Bunyip is one of them. That you know, yeah, um, yeah. it's it's a cultural taboo. So not only is it something that Aboriginal people don't go near or touch, because you know, if you go near it, your family gets sick. You also don't talk about it for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aboriginal cultures work like that. Like the person who is allowed to see this or that particular initiation thing is they'll never speak of it to someone who hasn't been initiated in that way. Um, right. So because cultural taboos are, you don't even talk about it. It's completely mm-hmm. taboo. Um, so the bunyip was a taboo like that. So there's also that issue of if you ask the Aboriginal people who have seen this taboo thing, they're not going to give you data about a cultural taboo of theirs, you know, right. and white, pe- white people just couldn't fathom that, you know, mm-hmm. that there might yeah. be a reason these people would not want to talk about this thing, mm-hmm. which yeah, I guess also then lends itself to taking the piss as well. Yeah, there are lots of interesting taboos in um, various Aboriginal cultures where, uh, which I'm sure you'd be familiar with, with people, if someone dies, uh, then that name becomes taboo, and so they anyone who mm. has that name as well will take on a different name. Um, so yeah, it's certainly certainly very very different, um, and, and you can see the kinds of uh, miscommunication that this can lead to. 
Exactly right, yes. And, and a lot of these things just don't translate across cultures. Like we don't have necessarily an equivalent of all of these cultural phenomena because we come from such a vastly different culture. How is the cryptozoology culture? Is Do, do they take the bunyip seriously like, like some people do the yowie or, or other or the uh, Tasmanian tiger, that sort of thing. I mean, are they are they seriously looking for bunyips, or is it? Yeah, they are. Wow. Um, I've I've met and spoken to multiple people who self-identified as cryptozoologists who claim that the bunyip literally exists and is out there. Yeah. Um, the same thing though we have with thylacines. There is archaeological evidence that there were at some point there were thylacines on the mainland of Australia, um, and there are cryptozoologists who are still out there going on bushwalks and looking for them. Um, the thylacine, by the way, went extinct in the 20th century in Tasmania, which um, at that point was the only place in the world that it lived. Uh, and those cryptozoologists believe that that was not the case, that it didn't go extinct, that it's still there in Tasmania. So they're out there in Tasmania looking for it as well. Wow. Yeah. I know up yeah. um, where my mum lives in the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, uh, there's the uh, Beast of Butterham, which is, I think, believed to be, by some, to be the thylacine that still yeah. exists. <laughs> yeah, there's also um, one of Dave Waldron's books, Snails from the Tea Tree, talks about that kind of thing a lot. Uh, and his case study was the Tantanula tiger, which was in South Australia. Tantanula tiger was actually a dog. Um, but we won't let that get in the way of a good story. Definitely <laughs> 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 um, not. <laughs> when they taxidermed it, um, they did some like really bad taxidermy to make it look more sort of weird and angry than it actually was. Uh, and they put stripes on its back. So it tried to make it look like a thylacine, but it, it's it's a dog. Yeah, it's it's funny that that people feel the need to uh, invent monsters when things like rabbits have become monsters in Australia. I mean, you know, <laughs> like cane toads. <laughs> right, cane right. Toads, yeah. The cane toads are the real monsters out there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we should do rabbits. a show on cane toads sometime. I think we really should. There's a guy who has a museum of cane toads, and he dresses them up in tuxedos and things, and. Taxidermed them in, you know, playing pianos and stuff. <laughs> Talk about a monster, hey? Well, yeah, I know, right? Who's <laughs> a monster? Yeah. So, so for uh, Americans, uh, why are cane toads so monstrous? Um, they have poisonous glands on their back, and they kill anything that tries to eat or touch them. Um, other than that, yeah. <laughs> other than that, um, they were released in plague proportions in the 20th century to try and kill the cane beetle, which was another introduced species in Australia. Wow. Um, and the beetle, the beetle was destroying our sugarcane industry. So we released the toads to try and kill the beetles, and then the toads took off and um, started you know, becoming a problem of their own. And they're now spreading like wildfire and impossible to eradicate. Yeah, I think actually, like Karen, you're onto something. We could call it Raising Cane, too. That would be good. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> I'm sure you can find someone. I saw a documentary on it a while ago, and yeah, my, my mum, she's always got problems with cane toads, and, and they're impossible to kill. The old lady who swallowed a fly, you know, the introducing new animals to kill previous ones that were introduced to kill previous ones and so on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. It's a thing that we've always done in Australia, too, in the colonies. There was a an organization called the Acclimatization Society, and they were deliberately releasing, you know, wrens and sparrows and starlings and, you know, birds that are uh, a pest now that are a massive problem for industry and agriculture. They were also releasing feral cats and rabbits, and, you know, they even toyed with releasing predators like tigers and stuff, but a lot of the stuff they released just died out there because our environment's so hostile. But mm-hmm. um, the things that didn't die are now massive ecological problems here. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah, that is a really good topic. I mean, it's it's a tragic one, but it is uh, really interesting. So I I realize we've uh, taken up a little bit more time than uh, you probably intended, but uh, we really appreciate you sticking around with us. Yeah, it's yeah. been fun. Yeah, for sure. We have a question we like to ask people, uh, especially on their first visit, uh, and that is, uh, this is our closer, it's our signature question, what is your favorite monster? My favorite monster is my three-year-old daughter. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I guess my second favorite is Count Von Count from Sesame Street. Oh, oh. <laughs> what I find so funny about that is, uh, as a complete monster nerd, the Count from Sesame Street, he's always counting things, which is <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because it's a pun, right? But it, it's twice as funny if you read vampire lore and discover that, <laughs> no, seriously, vampires uh, in many uh, in the European tradition have to count stuff. So if, you, if you're being chased by a vampire, they never show this in movies for the most part, but you can throw down rice or you can throw down salt and the vampire has to stop and then count <laughs> all these items before it can continue chasing you. And uh, the only place I've ever seen that shown in uh, a fictional representation based on folklore was the X-Files, where they did an episode where uh, I think Mulder threw, I think it was rice, and the vampire had to stop and count it. And and he was all pissed off. uh, You know, when I'm finished (laughs) counting this, I'm really going to make you pay for making me stop and do this, right? (laughs) And so I I don't think, I think the Sesame Street guys were just going for the pun. Uh, but you don't think they were aware of that I really doubt it at least initially surely by now they're aware of it but it it is so uh, it was so delightful to make that connection uh, as a you know as a young uh, American kid uh, that Mm -hmm. that there was a double meaning there whether they intended it or not I love that so yeah Yeah. we've got something in common too I've got a a three year old a three year old boy and he's definitely my favorite monster too favorite demon favorite favorite monster Uh, perhaps we can meet up somewhere between here maybe in the Pacific and we'll race them yeah (laughs) (laughs) you can they can go play on the the Pacific uh, plastic uh, gyre I think is (laughs) (laughs) well Paul Michael thank you so much for taking time to talk to Monster Talk we really appreciate it Yes, thank you for having me on. It was wonderful. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, enlightening us a bit about the the uh, the possible uh, seal basis of uh, of this creature. Now, have you published uh, your 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 hypothesis about the seal as the explanation? I did in the Journal of Cryptozoology. Oh, Uh, but since then, I've uh, been focusing on my PhD research and haven't had much time to publish it elsewhere. Is that um, the Carl Schuker series? Yeah, it is, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, I probably have and it. And <laughs> I'm working on probably um, publishing more on this topic in the future. Um, you should. But yeah, my my supervisor, Professor Ian Clark, published a paper uh, in 2018, um, which is well worth a read. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in further reading for that, then yeah, check that out. Uh, he talks about the Chalicum sources and he talks about the on context of it, um, but he uses a few of a few specific case studies of colonial people who uh, had encountered this mythology and who went sort of seeking it. Awesome. He also discusses the skull and other things. Yeah, 
Very cool. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Michael Donovan about the mysterious water cryptid of Australia, the Bunyip. He makes a very compelling argument about the plausible explanation for the long tradition of Bunyip stories being based on a real animal. It wouldn't be the first time that real animals lay at the heart of frightening monster stories, and it certainly won't be the last. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for listening to our show. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.